Um, like I said, Antley is out of town, and you've got me for the rest of the day. Exciting, exciting. What, what? Oh, middle school. If you're not already gone, leave. I think they already went. They grabbed their lollipop and they ran. All right. Um, as I said before, my name is Derek. I'm the pastor of Ocean City Church, a church that doesn't exist yet. <laughs> Aunt Lee said, I'm going to go out of town and I'm going to leave you with the church because you need practice, man. I was like, all right. Let me get it done today. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about today, actually the thing I want to talk about, is, you know, what motivates us? You know, what motivated you to come here this morning? Um, what motivates us to do good works as we see them in the Bible? You know, we know we're supposed to, um, you know, we heard uh, uh, Becca's testimony about, you know, working on, at, working at Street Corner Ministry, which is basically a ministry where we go and pray for people and we feed people in District 9. You know, what motivates us to do those things? What, what gets us out of bed to go do street corner? What gets us out of bed to volunteer at Hollybrook? What brought you here this morning? You know, what was the thing that motivated you and stirred your heart and said, I need to go to church this morning and hear a sweet message from Derek? You know, what is it that stirs us and gets us going? And what is the thing that drives us to, to work every day? What is the thing that gets us out of bed just to go to work? And, you know, what is it that keeps us in college, you know, makes us want to spend tons and tons of cash to stay in college and get educated? What, are those, what is the thing that motivates us? What is the thing that we're reaching for and grasping for? And that's one of the things we're going to talk about this morning. I'm going to pray, um, and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, I just thank you and praise you just for, for who you are, what you've done. God, I just pray that this morning that um, people will hear the gospel that they will hear your message and not mine, that you, as I speak my words, they are yours and not mine. And God, this morning that you are glorified, that you are lifted up, um, and that people begin to see, and that I begin to see who I am in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're talking about this idea of, you know, what motivates us, what gets us, you know, what gets us, going? What gets us moving? You know, what are we, what are we trying to do um, in this life, right? What are we trying to do? What is the thing that's behind us? And I'm going to start in this passage, Genesis chapter 3, and we're going we're to go through, um, I'm not going through the entire Bible, don't worry, but we're going to start in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, and just to give you a little bit of background, God has created the entire world. He's created everything at this point. Everything is done, and Adam and Eve are chilling in the garden. They're ruling and reigning with God in the garden. Everything is good. All things are pretty sweet and happening at this point. But then we hit chapter 3, and uh-oh, the first big boo-boo, right? So here we go in, ver in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than... Sorry, I can hear my monitor up here. I don't know if you want to turn the monitor feed down. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, or the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that if you eat, when you eat 
When you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she saw that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one... Sorry. Everybody okay? I'm okay. A little deaf. Got a ringing in my ears. Can't figure out what that is. Um, where was I? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband. Naughty. Gosh. She gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Wingnut. Why did you eat it? Come on. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were what? Naked. <laughs> Every time you get to that part of the story, don't you, you know, we, I've, got, I've got three kids, and you're telling the story, you're reading your little Bible book, and you get to the part where they're, and you just say naked, and they're like, <laughs> you know? And all, and all, even guys, you know, in middle school, they become little girls, and <laughs> naked, N-A-double-K-I-D, naked. They were naked. I want you all to remember that. And then they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. They, they realized that they were naked. They realized they didn't have anything on them. Like, we got to cover this junk, right? They go and get some leaves, and they're like, let's strap this on because we don't feel right about it. Something happened right at that moment when they did the first big boo-boo. They realized they were naked. And then this happened, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. Now I can imagine, and it's, verse 8 says, and they, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. What does the sound of the Lord walking in the garden sound like? I imagine, yeah, I imagine the creator of the universe, you know, is pretty amazing walking through a, a garden in the cool of the day. You know, God manifests here on earth that way. And if you were a, a dude and his wife and you had just made a big boo-boo and you heard the sound of the Lord walking through the garden, I imagine you'd probably hide too, right? So give them, give them a little bit of a break there, right? So the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? I love that because, I mean, did, was God, you know, trying to find them through the bushes or is he, is, he's God. He knows where they are, but he asked the question anyway. And he said, I heard the sound of you. This is man responding to God. I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. I bet you were, Right? Because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said this. This is, this, is what God, this is God's response to them. And I want you to remember that today. This is important for what I'm talking about. He said, who told you that you were naked? Who told you? Who came and told you that you were naked? He says, have you eaten the fruit of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman gave it to me. She did it. It's her fault. She gave me the fruit and I ate it. And then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent has eaten me. I didn't do it. So not only were they physically covering themselves and covering their tracks, they were trying to blame shift and do this number right here. They really felt naked in, in many ways. They felt like, man, we have totally blown it. We have screwed up. This is the end of the deal. We are in trouble. And to some degree at that point, they were right, because what happens next? God says, boop, boots them out of the Garden of Eden. Puts two, you know, I'm sure they were pretty sturdy dudes at the, at the garden with flaming swords, basically saying, you're not getting back in here. You're not getting back in here, 
right? And for the rest of time, you know, so history begins and we have been trying to work ourselves, right, back into the Garden of Eden. We're trying to figure out how to get back in, how to cover our nakedness, how to cover our tracks, how to do something that will gain us something because we have lost everything. This is the point when we have lost everything, right? There's something about that exposure feeling that happens here in Genesis 3 that I can relate to. Um, All of us, most of us in here, um, went to high school and middle school and I don't know if you remember, there's this thing that happens with the first day of school that's kind of, you feel kind of exposed on the first day of school, especially like if you're going from middle school to high school, right? You're going, you know, making that big leap from, you know, eighth to ninth grade, and you're going to be a, a freshman. And the first day of school is like daunting. You are nervous. You feel a little bit naked and exposed. And what do you have to get done before the first day of school? Somebody tell me, like something that's important as a middle schooler that's got the first day of school coming up. What do we got? Something's got to happen. We, me and mom, we got to go do something. We got to get some school clothes. And they better be, we got to get them, they better be off the chain, off the chizzy, off the whizzy. They better be the sweetest shoes. I better have some Toms and some skinny jeans. In my case, it was pegged Levi's with topsiders and, you know, whatever. It was totally different for for me, but you better have some sweet clothes because you don't want to roll up into school, you know, looking like a, a ding-dong, right? You're like, I am in ninth grade. It's already tough enough. I feel a little bit exposed and naked as I go anyway. I mean, where do those dreams come from anyway? Have you ever, anybody ever had that dream where you realize you're at school? It's like a dead gummit. I don't know how I showed up here. I don't have any clothes on. I think that's part of that anxiety of, you know, well, how did I get here? You know, first day of school, you do, you feel so exposed. And for me, I grew up in a middle-class family, and um, my dad worked at Sears. So there was no Target who does a pretty decent job of getting some decently cool branded stuff out there. Sears, back in my day, was what we call not cool. Um, and they had this, they had these clothes. And my mom, you know, my parents, sweet as can be. You know, my dad's working hard, middle-class, chugging away at Sears. And, you know, not much money. You're going to wear the Sears clothes. That wasn't as bad in high school, but, man, when I was in middle school, it was rough. They had this, these jeans. I don't know if any of y'all remember these jeans. They were called tough skins. <laughs> Come on, shout out for tough skins. These were unbelievable. I mean, I absolutely, I, this, these were not cool. You'd put these things on, and, I mean, you'd be walking like, you know, they were <laughs> stiff as boards. And they, it, they, they didn't, there was no shame in their game at Sears they really didn't care about fashion. You could actually see like the rough knee pads that they put in them so you didn't tear them up. And mom would come home with the tough skins. And I'm telling you, you could not cut them with, with you know, Cutco knives. There was nothing. I Trust me, I tried to make them cooler and try to cut them with something and make them look cool. You could not cut them. You could bleach them and they would come out the exact same color. That was me. And mom would come home with a, with a shirt. You know, you know, it was cool to always have the eyes out or the polo. You know, you got to have the dude with the deal, you know. But my mom would come home, and Sears always had a little bit different deal. You come home, and there's a dragon. My mom was like, look, it's just like an eyes out. I'm like, no, it's not. It's a Sears shirt with a dragon on it. Not really digging that. So we get kind of that idea. We, I mean, there's, in our lives, we are seeking the approval of others, are we not? We are trying to cover our nakedness with something. 
I mean, when we, the thing that I'm, I'm, I'm getting at today is our motivation a lot of times is this idea of covering our insecurities and covering our nakedness. When we're trying to, you know, when we, we give for all the wrong reasons. We talked about giving for a while, but, you know, is, are we trying to receive the approval of the church? What are we trying to do when we, when we give to the church or when we serve in the church? You know, a lot of times our motivation is it, is it because we're trying to gain security? Are we trying to gain approval? You know, why do we serve at Street Corner? Why do we serve at Hollybrook? Why do we get good jobs and make money? I mean, a lot of it is, you know, of course we're providing for our family. And there's nothing wrong with doing any of those things. But what I'm getting at is what is the motivation that we do the things that we do? What is the motivation for us to serve God? What was the motivation for you to get up this morning to come to church? Was it, I need a, I've got, I need to fix something. I got some stuff that's broken. And that's not a bad reason to come to church, I'm telling you. I mean, it's a good place to come. But we come wanting to fix something, wanting to gain something, wanting to get something because we know that something's broken. We know that we've lost something. Right? We know that we've lost something. And it's this insecurity and nakedness that kind of drives us um, and motivates us many times. I always put it, put it this way. You know, whether it's to sin or not sin, whether it's to gain the approval of my friends or my peers. You know, I began to ask kind of the reason that I, I, I picked this topic is because for me, I have to ask a lot of questions as somebody that wants to plant a church 15 miles away from their home church at the beach when there's 1,500 other churches in Jacksonville. Your motives better be pure, right? Why are you doing this? Is this so you can get attaboys, Derek? You know, why do you work in student ministry? Why do you get up and teach? Why do you get up and lead worship? What's the motivation behind it? What are the reasons that you're doing these things? And a lot of times I feel like this. I just watched online um, Survivor the other night, but I, I, I think we all feel this way. We want to be the, the person that does not get thrown off the island. We don't want to get thrown off the island. And we operate many times, our mode of operation is out of insecurity and we're trying to gain security. You know, when we're, when we're teaching our kids to do the right thing, how do we teach them? I mean, I, for me, it's like, stop it. I mean, that's the biggest thing. It's like, they're, you know, you're touching your sister, you're hitting your sister, you know, you're teasing your brother. Stop it. Don't do that. Why? Because you know that it's right not to do that. You know that's the right thing. And does that motivate anybody? No. As soon as I leave and, and go somewhere else or they're at a friend's house, they're smacking each other, teasing each other, and doing exactly because the fear's gone, because I've motivated with fear. You know? Or they're trying to receive the approval of their mother and father. I'm going to do it because I want to please mom and dad. And, and, you know, we think, okay, that's not actually a, a bad reason, is it? But let's get into this and see. All right, let's read. We're going to read through the rescue in Ephesians 2. There's many places in which Paul talks about the redemption and the rescue. We talked about the fall. I mean, that's like the first part of the gospel, right? We realize we've made a big boo-boo. And then something's got to happen to fix all these things. And that's what happens here. It's just one of many places where Paul kind of gives us a great picture of our rescue in the gospel. I'm going to start in verse 1 in Ephesians 2, if you've got your Bible. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body in the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So we're lumped in with Adam and Eve. We've all 
got the boo-boos too, right? We've screwed up. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we had no way to save ourselves, no way to pick ourselves up, no way to find our way back to the garden, no way to cover our nakedness. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated And he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Poured out his kindness on us. I love this in 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and it is not of your own doing. There's nothing that you've done to earn it, to get it, to grasp for it. It's not of your own doing, for it is the gift. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. See, my question is, is as Christians, I think sometimes we hear the gospel and we're, we're like, we understand the gospel. We know that, that sin's a problem. Jesus is the answer, right? We get the basics of the gospel. A lot of us have, have said the prayer and gone through the process of understanding the gospel. But is the gospel, my question today, is the gospel the answer for us in motivating us in life? You know, to sin or to not sin or to serve or to not serve. Is the gospel the thing that should be motivating us or should it be our insecurity? Should it be our nakedness that drives us? Because I look at my, myself and a lot of times... It's my nakedness. It's my, the thing that I want to uh, get approval for. I'm trying to cover myself because I'm insecure. And I suspect there's a lot of people in here that feel the same way. Feel, feel the same way. That there's an insecurity in you. That the thing that you get up and do in the morning is part of covering your nakedness and in your insecurity. And what I'm saying is the gospel is the solution for those things. We spend our lives trying to cover our nakedness by working hard and cleaning up. We often miss the gospel entirely. And this is what I'm talking about. I I say a lot of stuff, thrown a lot out there, and I want to try to bring the funnel down and make a point here. Um, Tim Keller, who we often mention, there's a gospel study uh, that Tim Keller um, wrote that you can be a part of in your community groups. But Tim Keller um, tells this story about pastoring or ministering to a college student. And long story short, the, the college student he was pastoring was an absolute um, dirtbag. I mean, he was an absolute, he, sexual exploits left and right on college campus. He was a good-looking guy, a smooth talker, and the way that he wielded his power was with sex. The ladies absolutely loved this guy, and that's what he did, woman after woman after woman after woman on college campuses. Total dingbat and dirtbag. I mean, he was just a bad dude. And Tim Keller's pastoring this guy. Well, he, quote-unquote, becomes a Christian. And he begins to work in in ministry. And people are like awed and wowed by his transformation. He is like a powerhouse in ministry. Everybody's like, dude, Larry, I'll just call him Larry because I call everybody Larry. Larry is awesome. Larry, look look at what Larry's doing. Look how much Larry has changed. Look at the transformation in his life. Look how awesome that is. We can't believe what Larry's doing. Bringing people to Jesus He is like a powerhouse in campus ministry on this college campus. And Tim Keller says this, Larry wasn't saved. Larry wasn't a Christian. He missed the gospel entirely. 
He missed the gospel entirely. And you're thinking, how in the world, Larry, there's transformation. I see what's, what's happened. This is what happened with Larry. Guess where all his attaboys and his approval was coming from now? It used to be in sex, which was easy for all of us to see that Larry was a dirtbag. But Larry says, you know what? I can cover my nakedness a whole lot easier being in ministry. And I can get my attaboys in approval and wield my power in ministry. And that's what Larry started doing. He started churning out ministry. He had missed the gospel entirely. He's like, okay, I said the prayer. Let's get on to wielding some power, getting some approval. I'm pretty insecure, so I need people telling me how great I am. Ooh. Ooh. And I heard that story and it cut me to the bone. It talk, talk about self-examination, about why you do the things that you do and how we cover our nakedness. I started looking at my, my own life. You know, Derek, why are you in ministry? Why do you do the things that you do? Is it a response to something or are you trying to cover something? Why do we do the things that we do? In Romans 12.1, it says this. I'm missing a total page of my talk, which is fine. I can totally roll with it. Not a problem. We will remember through the power of God. Um, in Romans 12.1, it says this. In view of God's mercy, that we live our lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable act of worship. Let's listen to the beginning of that. In light of in view of, in light of God's mercy. Here's our motivation. Here's, here's how we're supposed to be motivated. In light of, in view of God's mercy, in view of what God's done, we live our lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. In view of, in light of God's mercy. That's the gospel. That's how we get motivated. That's how we do the things that we're supposed to do. You see... Slavery is living life to gain favor. It is. It's living life to gain favor. And freedom is living life because you have favor. You've already gained it. You've already got it. You see, it's, it's a different perspective. It's not living life, to gain approval. We don't do the things. We're not motivated because we're trying to figure out how do we grasp, how do we get, how do we get approval, how do we live a life that is, people will think is good. It's living a life because you are approved of. We look at Ephesians. He's done everything. Not that we could boast. He's done everything. He's finished it. He's completed it. He's covered our nakedness. Who told you you were naked? Right? Who told you you were naked? Because you no longer are. As believers, as the body of Christ, you're no longer naked. It's covered. So we operate out of being approved of. We don't operate because we're trying to gain security and trying to get security. We operate because we are secure. It's a whole different place of, of operation. It's a whole different place of coming from, knowing that we are approved of. This is a frightening thing. I, I thought about this. Somebody said this once, and I thought, man, is that, is that my church? Is that anybody's church? He said, I think that we live in a society where we would love to have the streets clean, We'd love to have the strip clubs calm. We'd love to have our kids safe, educated, obedient, and moral. Jesus or no Jesus, we would be okay. 
void of the gospel. We want to clean everything up and get it just right. But God's like, no, you do right and you can be right only one way and it's by responding to the gospel. If we're doing it to gain approval, it will be short-lived. If we're doing it to gain security or wield power, it will be short-lived. That's motivation that just doesn't work. You know, I tried to figure out how this works in my own family, and I asked my son if I could tell this story. But, you know, as Beth and I have been trying to think about how does this gospel-centeredness work, how do I respond, how do I teach my kids, how do I respond from the gospel, knowing what's been given to me and respond. And my son, he's just such a sweet kid, such a giving kid. I mean, he was dropping the quarters in the Miracles of Love at Walmart the other day, saying, I'm making miracles. He's a sweet kid. But he gets in the zone often when he wants something. When he's, he's like, okay, I, I want something. There's, there's something I want. And Blake Fowler, his best friend, has just gotten a sweet redline BMX bike. And he's like, dude, this is the most awesome thing ever. And I got to get me a BMX bike. I got to do what I got to do. And he's pretty good. He's, he comes up with a strategy. He starts to figure it out. And one of the things that he wanted to do along the way is he's like, okay, I know my sister loves my Schwinn. I'm going to sell my Schwinn to my sister for $40. So, so he, you know, he's not thinking. He's, he's just a kid, but, but, you know, Beth comes to me, and she's like, he can't, you know, we gave him the Schwinn. He cannot be selling his Schwinn for $40. to sister. We're not going to do that, right? And so we started talking and having this conversation. And I was like, ah, oh, i got to figure out. I, wanna, I, want, I want my son's heart to change. I don't want to just come up to him and say, you can't do that. You can't sell your deal to your sister for $40. It's not right. I didn't want to come to him that way. I'm trying to think, okay, how do I do this gospel-centered way, right? So I kind of retwisted around. I'm sitting here talking to him on the fly. I'm like, God, just help me speak to my son the right way. So I think of a story in Matthew 18, and I'm, I'm going to take one of Jesus' parables, and I'm going to twist it up a little bit, and you can look it up later if you, if you recognize it. But I say, Jack, let's, let's, I'm going to tell you a hypothetical story. You're out, you know, cruising around on your bike one day, and it's the end of the day, you're pretty much done with your bike, and your neighbor TJ comes up to you and says, hey, hey, Jack, can I borrow your bike? And you're like, yeah, I'm done with it for the day. You, TJ, take it. You can ride off on it. Just make sure that you throw it in the backyard at the end of the night when you're done with it, right? Take it and, you know, you know, ride it, have fun with it, but just get it back to me tonight so that I'll have it tomorrow. And you come home for dinner, and you realize that your, your wealthy uncle who is absolutely so rich. He's richer than Bill Gates. He has everything, owns everything. He is amazing. You didn't even know you had this uncle. I wish we did have this uncle. He's got tons of money. He's got tons of resources. He's just this amazing dude. And you, you're telling him he's really cool and dynamic. So Jack, you're telling him stories about BMX bikes and what you want. And you're like giving him the whole deal. My friend Blake Fowler's got one. It's awesome. And I want one in this color. It's this kind. It's really sweet. And he says, you know what? Jack, I've been listening to you talk about that, and you, you wouldn't believe this, but I, I love BMX too. I've always loved it. And I've got a garage full of 50 BMX bikes, top of the line, everything you could possibly ever want, everything you could possibly imagine in a garage. You know, the bike that you told me that you like, I've got it in every color. And he's like, you know, thinking, wow, this is awesome. You know, if this could happen, this would be a miracle, right? And then he says, Jack, I, I'm going to give you that garage full of bikes, all of it. I'm going to give you everything. I'm going to give it to you. It's yours. And he's like, oh, that would be sweet. Okay, so the next day you're riding around on your bike after your sweet, awesome uncle that owns everything in the world. 
has given you a garage full of 50 bicycles and the one that you love in every color. You're riding around on your bike and you see TJ is still riding around on your bike. Do you jump off your bike and you go slap him in the back of the head and say, TJ, what are you doing? You're still on my bike. And he's like, no, of course not. I'd give him the bike. I just got everything. I've got all the bikes I could possibly ever want. I could never want, why would I ever want to do that? And I'm like, the gospel. It's the gospel. We've received everything. We've received everything. My son realized, I've got everything. I've got everything. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he had it all, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now that's motivation. That's motivation that changes things for the long haul. It changes things for the long haul. That's how we pour out at street corner ministry expecting nothing in return. People can be mean to you, not appreciate the things that they get, not want prayer. But for you to be there for the long haul, you better be doing it because you're responding to getting everything, to receiving everything. Because that's what's happened to you and that's what's happened to me. Our nakedness is covered. Who told you that you were naked? You're no longer naked. You've received everything. Ephesians 1 says that we've inherited everything from Jesus. We get everything. We're sons and daughters. We've gotten everything. We got a garage full of BMX bikes. Of course, we're going to give our old bike away at least, right? That's motivation. That's how we serve our husbands and our wives without expecting anything in return, without expecting approval and security from them because we get that from who? Jesus, who is not giving it to us. He's given it to us. We've got it. That's how we make life's decisions are centered around Jesus and not our own agenda, and it makes it easy. That's how we survive pain and tragedy when it strikes. Because the only equation that works under the kingdom of heaven is Jesus plus zero equals everything. It's everything. We've been given everything. I love the, the, the story of the guy that, that, that Jesus tells in Matthew of the, the, the treasure in a field and he buries it and he sells everything to gain it because he, he's figured something out. He's like, I've got everything I'll ever possibly need. I don't need anything else. So he buries it. And I, I can imagine the guy at the pawn shop, he's unloading all this amazing stuff and people are like, hey, what are you doing, dude? And he's like, you have no idea. I'm going to buy this field over there and you have no idea what's in it. You couldn't imagine what's in it. It's everything. He needed nothing else. And that's you and that's me. We don't need anything else. And man, that's motivation to pour out our lives in a way that will last forever and ever and ever and ever. I'm going to leave you with this, something that Tim Keller says. I just think if you've got your Bible and you want to write it next to Ephesians or whatever, just remember this is such a good quote, not to add to your Bible. We don't do that. Tim Keller's not Paul. But just as a side note, okay, listen to this. This is so good. Rejoicing in your acceptance is a way of praising God until the heart is sweetened and rested in the finished work of Christ, which causes it to relax its grip on anything else it needs outside of Christ. I'm going to repeat that because it's so good. Rejoicing in your acceptance is a way of praising God until the heart is sweetened and rested in the finished work of Christ, which causes it to relax its grip on anything else it thinks it needs. 
You see, a lot of times I think we think that, okay, I no longer seek the approval of man. I'm seeking the approval of God. That sounds like a good statement. That's, I'm no longer about man's approval. I'm about God's approval. That's wrong. It's theologically wrong. You are approved of. You don't seek God's approval. No matter what you do, how you act, what you do, as a believer, as a Christian, that has, he's poured out everything, you are approved of. You are wearing Jesus all over you. You operate from being approved of. And when we're that way, we're like the people in Romans 8. We're more than conquerors. I mean, when, when nothing else is important to you but Jesus and the gospel, then who can come against you, right? That's what it says. There's nothing else that can come against you. And how powerful that will make us as a church to be centered and responding from the gospel and only the gospel. Nobody can touch us. Not death, not hurt. We don't need anybody's approval. We go do the things that God's calling us to do and we are more than conquerors and we don't need anything else because we're approved of, we're secure, we're no longer naked. Who told you that you were naked? Not. Let's pray.